Hey, well, good morning, Coastal Church. Pastor Sean here just wanted to introduce our new sermon series. We're picking up where we left off last year in Exodus. In fact, uh, if you've been around Coastal for any length of time, we are making our way through the Pentateuch at the beginning of every new year. And so starting this week, we are picking up where we left off in Exodus. Last year, we talked about how God delivered his people from the hand of Egypt. And now this year, uh, we're going to join with the nation of Israel and we're going to see God's hands and provision as they travel across the wilderness. And we're going to end the series talking about the Ten Commandments. And of course, we will be applying all of this to God's gracious gift to us in His Son, Jesus Christ, and how Jesus fulfills all the promises. Hey, also, I want to remind you, Coastal, we're in our small group season. And if you're not yet in a small group, I really hope that you'll make an eight-week commitment and join one of our small groups as we journey together through the book of Exodus. And so we love to unpack God's Word in a community, in a small group. And so if you haven't yet joined a small group, get a grow book. Find a small group that fits your time. Join up. You won't regret it. It's a big part of your spiritual growth as together we journey through the book of Exodus. Your life. Okay. Exodus. As uh, Pastor Sean said in his video, we have uh, followed the children of Israel as they were redeemed from Egypt last year in our uh, early part of the year. It's been a, a really fascinating uh, journey. And so now we're going to begin to follow them. Having left Egypt, now what's going to happen? So we'll do that over the next seven weeks. Before we do that, I want to tell you about a story I heard or read, I should say. Uh, it was uh, a story of a monk who went to a monastery and as part of his commitment to being there, he was obliged to a vow of silence no elbows, please. Uh, we don't want anybody obliging their spouse to a vow of silence. But um, he had a vow of silence. He could not talk except for once a year when he had the opportunity to speak two words. So at the end of his first year, he went to his uh, supervisor and uh, he said, well, what are your two words? He said, bad food. And the supervisor took the hint and uh, changed up the menu at the monastery and everybody was happy and all the monks were well-fed and all of that. And another year went by and uh, he came back and the supervisor said, well, what are your two words for this year? He said, cold bed. The supervisor took a hint, got new mattresses, new blankets, made everybody comfy when they're sleeping. And, uh, Year three, now coming for his fifth and sixth words, his two words for the end of his year. And supervisor said, well, what is it this year? He said, I quit. To which the supervisor responded, well, finally, all you've done ever since you got here is complain. We, uh, we are a grumbling lot. We have a tendency to see what we don't like, right? It's been gorgeous weather. Friday was amazing. Today it's raining. <sighs> Even though we know we love the rain, we want it to rain, right? We need the rain. Spring is around the corner. And but we don't always like it when it rains when we don't want it to rain. So why do we do that? Why do we grumble? 
Maybe because our expectations aren't met? I don't know. Perhaps that's the usual one. Whether we do it constantly, publicly, on Facebook, in our private conversations at home, or even in our own heart, I think we all struggle with a grumbling spirit. Well, that's nothing new, as you may know. Scriptures are full of examples of people who grumbled and complained, and the children of Israel were part of that group. So I want to talk to you today about the faithfulness of God's provision, even though his people were complaining and grumbling. And I want to tell you first, grumbling comes naturally, but it's still wrong. It seems really to come very naturally to us, right? I mean, we see something we don't like or something happens to us or whatever, and all of a sudden we're like, and so we start talking about why it wasn't the way it should have been. The first reason for that is we are quick to forget and quick to complain. We are quick to both of those things. To get a little evidence of that, I actually want to back up into Exodus chapter 14. And beginning in verse 30, I read, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. So you remember what this is talking about, right? They had gone through the Red Sea, dry ground, walls of water on the side. The entire nation of Israel got through, and the Egyptians tried to follow them in the army and were drowned when God brought the water back over them. And they saw that. Verse 31 says, they saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. They had just been through that after 400 years of slavery, after 400 years of crying out to God for deliverance from bondage. They had seen what God had done. I mean, we're talking days here, right? Now, we're, it's, it's been a year since we talked about it, but in the text, in the context, in the history that's going on, we're talking days later. They sing and they shout and they dance and they celebrate what God has done throughout almost all of chapter 15 until we get down to verse 22, where we're told Moses made Israel step out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. That wasn't what they were hoping for. They found no water. Oh, sorry, lost my page. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, means, of course, bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. And there the Lord made for them a statue and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, 
and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. This is what God was doing to the people. He made the water sweet. He gave it to them. Three days in, and they're complaining. I read one writer who said, unbelief has a short memory and discontent perverts our perspective. They just watched what God did. And the people grumbled against Moses. Yeah, yeah, I, but that was last week. What about right now? Our, our tendency is to be quick to forget and quick to complain. And additionally, our current circumstances tend to fog our memory. So now we're in chapter 16. Beginning in verse 1, they set out from Elim, and all the congregation of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So now we're six weeks in. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you brought us out here into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Wow, six weeks in, and they're complaining again. They saw the miraculous deliverance of God. They watched as the water became sweet through the miracle of throwing a log in it because God said, that's what I'm going to use to make that happen for you. And it wasn't just that there were a few malcontents. It's everybody, right? The whole congregation grumbled and said, we'd have been better off dying in Egypt. Seriously? The nation cried out for 400 years to get out of that situation. They were dying in Egypt. They obviously forgot the centuries of slavery. They obviously forgot the cries for deliverance. At least we had lots of food to eat. But I got to wonder, did they? I mean, they were slaves. They probably didn't have, like, buffets around for the slaves. They, fancy word here, catastrophized their situation. You brought us out here to die in the wilderness. I, they knew better. But their current circumstances clouded their reason. So, grumbling does come naturally, but it's still wrong. Secondly, I want you to remember that testing comes normally, and it's good. Oh, I know, we don't like that part. We don't like the testing is normal, and we don't like to have to think about it being a good thing. Either one of those is frustrating. What's interesting to me is back at the very end of chapter 15, after the water was turned 
sweet and they could drink it and they got their fill and all of that. The last verse of 15 and verse 27 says, Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. They found an oasis in the desert. It was amazing. It was restful. It was refreshing. It was time away from the slavery. It was time away from the wilderness. It was a time of refreshing. Can I remind you, though, it can't all be like Elim. That's not how life works. We don't get to stay in the oasis. We have seasons of rest and refreshment that customarily prepare us for the next season of testing. Because we live in a world that is sinful and corrupt, and there's going to be testing. There are reasons for that that we'll come to in just a minute. Life in the wilderness is hard. But God always has us in the wilderness on purpose. He always has an intention. He's always accomplishing something for us in our wilderness time. So perhaps we should be sympathetic toward those who are in a test. And we look back at Israel. Well, I shouldn't say we, because I don't know what you do, but I look at Israel and I'm like, seriously? Look what you just experienced. I know it was hard for four centuries. I know that's a huge deal. Look at the deliverance God just brought to you. And now you're complaining because you don't like the water. Now you're complaining because you don't feel like you have enough food. I know food is important. I get it. It wasn't that they had no food because in the next chapter, it's going to talk about their flocks and their herds that they needed to water. It wasn't that they were without food. They couldn't eat them all, but there was something edible. But it wasn't what they were hoping for. But we have the full revelation of the scriptures. We know what God is doing in the world. They had shadows, according to the book of Colossians. We have the reality of Christ. We have the full revelation of the scriptures, and we still have a tendency to respond badly to testing. In fact, let me go to 1 Corinthians and just read a few verses. It's not on your screen. He's talking about Israel, warnings against idolatry. It says, I don't want you to be unaware. Our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all baptized into Moses in the cloud, the sea, ate the same spiritual food, and so on. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. We were just listening to this together. My wife was uh, listening through to her devotions on the way down, so I got to listen in uh, on hers on the way here and in the book of Numbers when they finally said, you know what, never mind, it's going to be too hard, we're not going in. And God said, okay, everybody from 20 and older is not going in, just like you said. Most of them were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, verse 6 says in 1 Corinthians 10, these things took place as examples for us, so we might not desire evil as they did. And on a few other things, verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did. 
Verse 11 says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now that verse is familiar. I've heard that a lot of times, but not always connected to Israel was an example for us. So let's be careful. Take heed lest we think we stand. We should perhaps be sympathetic to those who are in a test of their faith, who are in a struggle. Because we're all learning to walk by faith because we don't yet walk by sight. Testing is normal, but why? Why is it good? Because God tests us so that we see him better. Chapter 15. Back to verse 25, this is a read part of this before. I'm going to start partway through. The Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you'll diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I'll put none of these diseases that I put on the Egyptians on you, for I'm the Lord your healer. He tested them. You follow me and obey me, it will go well for you. One of the things that I hear every once in a while from somebody, but why did God say it has to be this way? I don't understand. It just seems like it's such a limitation. Let me remind you that whatever God has instructed for us to do is for our good, not for our hindrance. It is always better when we do things the way God has asked us to do them. Chapter 16, verse 4. I am sending bread, the Lord said to Moses. I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people will go out and gather a day's portion every, time, every day that I may test them whether they'll walk in my law or not. And he did. Down to verse 6 of this same chapter, Moses and Aaron said, At evening you'll know it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. In the morning you'll see the glory of the Lord. As soon as Aaron spoke, verse 10 says to the whole congregation, they looked to the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared. God tested them so that they would know God's glory in their lives. He still does that today, right? James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. But let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It may come as a surprise to you that I don't spend a lot of time in the gym. But I'm told that people who do, they use resistance, right? They have a certain amount of weight and they either lift it a certain amount of times or they lift it increasingly or whatever because they are testing, they are stretching, they are working and using those muscles. And then as those muscles heal, they're strengthened. 
God uses testing much the same way. He does it to produce steadfastness. Nobody who can lift 300 pounds in a bench press does that the first time they try. They have built up through the testing and strengthening of their muscles so that they can. God does that through testing with us. He does it to produce steadfastness. Now, we may think, well, I would just as soon not be steadfast then, but that isn't an option. God wants us to be steadfast. And so he brings testing into our lives to strengthen us, to enable us to continue through the end of our days here so that we can rest when we get to heaven. We're going to talk about that next week, the concept of our rest. We should consider it joy when we face various kinds of trials because God is doing something beneficial in us through those. Number three, God's faithfulness is unending and amazing. Why do I say that? Because of all the times that we see the word grumbling. He heard their grumbling. So, if you have had children at home, particularly of the double-digit variety, shall we say, you've heard a little grumbling on occasion, I'm sure. And when you were that age, your parents heard some, too. I know, we like to look back, right, because... Our current circumstances fog our memory. We think we were much better behaved. Well, if I'd ever talked like that, how do we know that? Because we did talk like that. But anyway, we get tired of hearing grumbling, even when they're little. I'm hungry. I want this. Or in the car, right? Are we there yet? Could we find a way to erase that from the English language? Man, car rides would be so much better. The people of Israel in verse 4, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain. Don't you expect that sentence to finish with, like, fire and brimstone or something? Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion that I may test them Why? Verse 7, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. Verse 8, the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. Verse 9, the Lord has heard your grumbling. Verse 12, I have heard, God says, the grumbling of the people of Israel. By the way, grumbling isn't an actual translation, right? That's just one of those words. It just sounds like what it is, like buzz, right? You don't translate that. Buzz means... Grumble means that. No? Do you you remember Dick Dastardly and Muttley? That dates me, I know. But, man... I loved Muttley. He was like my favorite cartoon character. And all he ever said was, rasa, 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 rasa. Grumbling. God heard their constant grumbling and in response provided bread. 
What an incredible indication of God's faithfulness. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about God's mercy, how we could define it in, on one hand as God's persistent refusal to wash his hands of us? It fits again, doesn't it? Constant grumbling. I mean, six weeks since they saw the miracles of the Exodus, and they're grumbling constantly. And God's reaction is to provide for them. He's in a committed covenant relationship with them. And so he remains faithful despite their faithfulness, their faithlessness. Our grumbling is ultimately against the Lord. Whoever it is we're complaining to, we should remember that we are ultimately grumbling against the Lord. That's several times in this whole section of Scripture. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and Moses and Aaron were like, what did we do? We tend to grumble against the person who is at least in charge, or at least uh, we feel like they could do something about it, but we're really grumbling against the sovereignty of God. And then lastly, God's provision is supernatural and perfect. Now, it's really interesting to me, and we're going to really breeze through these last few verses. But it's fascinating to me how many people, as I was reading and studying and preparing for this, how many people tried to explain this by some natural phenomenon. But there are too many things that make it impossible to be that. We'll kind of touch on it as we go. But what did it do? It met their needs. Verse 13 of chapter 16. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. In the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they didn't know what it was. And Moses said to them, It's the bread the Lord has given you to eat. So you now know one word of Hebrew. Manna means, what is it? They called it what they didn't know. I have no idea what it is, so we'll call it that. What is it? But it met their needs. It was the bread God had given them to eat. And there are several qualities about it that are really, really important. Number one, uh, it was sufficient. Verse 16, this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You'll take an omer, which is ballpark two quarts or two liters, maybe, uh, according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. So you get about uh, two quarts for each person that's living in your tent. They did so. Verse 17, they gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. It was sufficient we could learn some lessons about that too, right? I, I don't mean to turn things more often than necessary into a comment about giving, but that's one of the phrases we use at Coastal, right? When we talk about giving, it's not equal giving, it's equal sacrifice. It wasn't equal collection, but it was equal provision. They collected what they needed. They collected two quarts for every person in the household. It was sufficient. 
It was also daily. Verse 19, Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till morning, but they did not listen to Moses. Some of them left part of it till morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot it melted. They gathered exactly what they needed, and it would, it would suffice for that day, and they couldn't have any more. And if they did, it wouldn't last. That's the miraculous part. This didn't come from anything natural, because it would have lasted overnight at least. That's part of it. It was sufficient, and it was daily. Every day they got exactly what they needed. It gives a little bit of a new understanding to when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Provide for us today, Lord. There was a sense of daily provision, but it was also constant. I'm going to jump on ahead. This will be next week, part of next week's sermon. But verse 35, the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of Canaan. It was constant. It was daily. It was sufficient for their needs. And after 40 years, that's a lot of manna, right? Now, some of you love a lot of variety in your diet. Some of you are, you know, I've got a sister-in-law. She has the same thing for breakfast every day and has for her entire life. I pretty much do the same thing. It's not what she has, so hers is a little weird. But so what do you do? You roast it, you toast it, you boil it. I don't know, manna bagels, banana bread. I don't know, whatever whatever you can come up with. You're trying all these different things. If you're, if you're like a little Italian in your background, maybe manicotti, I don't know. But uh, there's only so much you can do for 40 years with this stuff. But it was the provision of God, sufficient, daily, and constant, until they were in the land, until they reached the promised land. So can I remind you of something else about this manna? John chapter 6, this instance comes up. And Jesus uses it to remind us that this foreshadowed Christ. The manna foreshadowed Christ. John chapter 6 and verse 29. Jesus is talking to these folks. And he says, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then, what sign do you do that we may see you and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the bread, the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Again, 
just a few weeks ago, we said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. The manna foreshadowed Christ, who provides for us everything we need to honor God and to be rightly related to God. Everything about it is sufficient. He meets our daily needs. He will be our constant provision all the way through to we're home personally with he and the Father. Our deepest hunger is spiritual, and Christ is the only sufficient supply for that. I'm going to come back around to that in a minute, but I want to give you a couple of thoughts to take home. Number one, stop complaining. The children are listening. Remember 1 Corinthians 10? These things were, they're an example for us, but they're written for our instruction. People are watching. Is it, is it unreasonable to say Christians ought to be the most grateful people around? We ought to be the least inclined to grumble and complain. I know that's a lot of pressure because our world is filled with grumbling and complaining. Everywhere you turn, somebody is grumbling. They didn't get this or they didn't get that or somebody else got it and they didn't or whatever. I got bypassed for a promotion and so-and-so got it. I don't understand. That's not fair. Others are watching. And some of that is simply we need, as, as one writer put it, we need to learn the difference between our needs and our greeds. Knowing what we need and what we just really, 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 really want. So much so that it feels like it's a need. Secondly, grow your trust in God. It just occurred to me, I wish I had the video of one of our pups at home. When we got her, she was like, you know, this big, tiny little thing. Couldn't get upstairs. She'd, she'd, you know, lumber up and flop on the top step. It was just the cutest thing you'd ever see. Now she weighs 50 pounds. She gets up the stairs very readily. Take some steps to learn to trust God. We do that by consciously choosing to step out in faith about something. Maybe it has to do with my giving to the Lord. Maybe it has to do with a decision that I need to make. Maybe it has to do with uh, a development of a, of a Christian discipline, a spiritual habit that I should have and I just haven't fit it in yet, take a step, do something. When, uh, when parents have young kids, dads love to like launch them, right? Throw them up and catch them. Listen, we all know that's at least in part because mom is watching going, it's just part of the fun. But regardless, for the children, they love it, right? They're screaming, and when he catches them, do it again, right? They want that because their father's the one doing it. So I had a, a, 
a, a fellow that worked with me at a previous church who had a little one and he was doing that and she, you know, we were friendly and all and she did that and I went like this and she screamed bloody murder. So, of course, I did not do it for her, but because I wasn't her father, we trust our father because he's done that before and caught us, right? We learn to trust God because he catches us every time. He is faithful. And so find steps to take. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to do this thing because I'm convinced this is what God wants me to do. And I'm going to I'm going to trust it and watch your faith grow. And then lastly, and if you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus, you've never come to a point of, of salvation where you have repented of your sin and believed in the gospel and received Christ, if that's never taken place for you, Jesus offers you the spiritual fulfillment and satisfaction that you need. You cannot get it anywhere else. I know that's a very exclusive claim, but Jesus is the one who made it. So you take him at his word or you don't, and I'm pleading with you. Understand you're imperfect, which is probably not a big revelation, right? Since none of us are what we need to be to get into heaven, we're all sinners. Recognize it. Jesus, God the Son, came to earth, lived the perfect life I could never live. He died paying the penalty for sin on the cross. He was buried and on the third day came back to life again. That's the gospel. Believe the gospel and receive Christ. Pray to receive Christ. Man, if you have never done that today, get the manna from heaven. Get the bread of life who is Jesus. That's where we start, right? We're on, we're on our way into, into Exodus. I mean, we're going to identify a lot with the children of Israel in here. Uh, but I hope along the way we can remember just how good and faithful our Heavenly Father is to us. In spite of our stumbles, in spite of our failings, in spite of our rebelliousness, He remains faithful. That's true to this day. So the testing you're in, the trial you're facing, God is doing something in you through that trial. Maybe he's doing something in someone near you as you go through that trial. We never know for sure, or don't always know exactly what God is accomplishing, but it does help us to be steadfast so we can walk faithfully with him. So listen, I'm going to pray, and uh, Worship team's going to come, we're going to sing a song, and then I'm going to come back up and we'll dismiss with our benediction as we uh, began last week, an opportunity to kind of, in a unified expression of our faith, uh, walk out together. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for this section of Scripture, and, and I, I confess to you my tendency to remember the past much more brightly than it actually was and consider my current frustrations to be much bigger than they actually are. Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust you, help us to rest in you, help us to, to look forward to what you're going to do, even in the midst of trials, to consider them something to choose to rejoice over because you are doing something beneficial in our lives through it. So thank you for your provision. Thank you for Jesus. We're so grateful for the 
uh, wonderful opportunity we have through him to be in a right relationship to you. And I just pray that you'd minister to our spirits as we sing this song and get prepared to close our service for I ask in Christ's name. Amen.